You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Veux-tu que je te dise un secret, Séverine Je t'aime chaque jour davantage. Un jour, il fallait que je vous voie. Sans votre mari, naturellement. Chez Anaïs. 11 cité Jean de Saumur. N'ayez pas peur. Vous êtes ici chez vous. J'ai toute prête à vous aider. Quand voudriez-vous commencer Vous êtes gentille et fraîche. C'est le genre qui plaît ici. Si vous vous appeliez Belle de Jour. Oui, si vous voulez. Vous avez quelqu'un qui vous attend Un petit ami Un petit mari C'est une nouveauté. Je crois qu'elle vous plaira beaucoup. Faut pas la brusquer. La première fois. Il est devenu exigeant. Il vous veut pour lui tout seul. À quoi penses-tu À nous deux. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. We are wrapping up Frenchuary with a look <laughs> at Louis Bunuel's Belle du Jour, based on the 1928 novel by Joseph Cassell. The film was released in 1967 and stars Catherine Deneuve as the titular Belle. That's the name she's given when the normally straight-laced Severine secretly lives out her submissive fantasies at a Paris brothel. Or does she? We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. We will still be here. So, Sam, when did you first see Belle de Jour, and what did you think? 
I first saw it, I want to say either when I was in college or maybe very early grad school. And my mind was pretty much blown. I mean, this has long been one of my favorite films and was just hugely important to me. I know I've seen this movie. <laughs> it's so funny because <laughs> like, I remember certain things about it as clear as day. I guess it's appropriate that with Louis Bunuel, I kind of don't remember all of it, or maybe I want to remember it in my own particular way. I definitely remember them throwing mud at Catherine Deneuve. I remember, of course, the opening with the uh, carriageman uh, whipping her and ravishing her. But that's about it. I didn't remember anything else. I didn't remember this amazing ending that the film has. So I don't know what was going on. I, I keep wondering if I made it all the way through it the first time, but it's Catherine Deneuve. I'm going to watch anything that she does because she is just so captivating. I don't want to be one of these podcast guys where I just sit and drool about Catherine Deneuve because I'll sit and drool about Michelle Piccoli as well. I mean, everybody mm. in this, uh, uh, Pierre Clemente, everyone. Oh my God. Yes. I was just going to say. <laughs> it's so funny because I read the, the book by Michael Wood about Belle du Jour and he also does the commentary on the Criterion disc and he doesn't think at this point in her career, she was a good actress and I just have to really fight him if I ever see him on the street because I think she was wonderful. And I mean, she made me ball like a baby in her previous films and in, in uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And oh, she's amazing time. in Repulsion. It's like, come on, dude, what's not to love? While I agree with you and will gladly help you engage in fisticuffs. Thank you. You hold them, I'll hit them. Just sweep the leg. <laughs> <laughs> this applies to certainly not just Deneuve, but a lot of young actors. I, I do think she's in certain films like Roger Vadim's Virtue and Vice, which would make a really fascinating double feature with Belle de Jour because it is also very, very loose Marquis de Sade adaptation of Justine set during World War II. It's, it's like this weird precursor to Solo that does have some great performances, but in the film, and she plays this similarly masochistic character, but not one who is masochistic by choice. She's victimized. But she gives this performance that she just seems kind of confused on, on set. When you're that young and you're in the some really demanding roles, you just need clear, strong direction, or at least the kind of set that something like Belle de Jour offered, which I think she said wasn't a great experience for her, but she did talk about how it was one of the most important films of her career, and Bunuel later said that he thinks a lot of the success of the film has to do with her and her performance more than him. So I guess there are maybe a couple films that she's not amazing in when she's 20, but that's insane. <laughs> she's incredible here. And also in Repulsion and Young Girls of Rochefort, like what? Why? Yeah, I don't understand why he would say that. Yeah, I know in particular he had troubles with her 
when she's being quote unquote clumsy and she drops that vase of flowers. But I think she's being very particular about the way that she drops that vase of flowers. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Cause I know I'm jumping like past the midpoint of the film here because this film, it's so eloquently built and I love well, I love the soundtrack. I love the use of sounds in here. I mean, the bells, the, the buzzing <laughs> box, but yes, the bells, the bells that start the film, the bells that end the film, the Japanese man with the little bells, the bells from the church, the bells from her clock. I mean, just bells all through this. And then I don't think that the word is the same, but bell du jour. It's, you know, I know that, uh, Bunuel We're definitely how to not s- the same. <laughs> no, I, I know that, but I knew Bunuel knows how to speak English, so I'm I'm almost wondering if it's a little bit of a play on that as well. But no, definitely not the same word. There's this scene at the beginning when they're on vacation in this kind of like snowy town, and somebody says that they want to go see. I think it's uh, Masha Merrill's character who says that she wants to go see this illusionist and Severine gets kind of upset and says she never wants to be around a hypnotist. So they have this sort of conversation that like hints at her anxiety about what's going on in her, in her private life and her subconscious and all those things that of course the film more fully explores as it goes on. But this idea of like a signifier, like an audio signifier of something that sort of slips you into that internal world and that fantasy world. I just, that's to me what the bells are all about. And I love the way they intrude on her real life sometimes, like the, the buzzing box and the church bells and the use to of overlapping dialogue and image. Even that first, I mean, let's call it a fantasy. I think it's a fantasy with her and Pierre, her husband, out in this forest. And then he s- stops the carriage, has her forcibly removed from the carriage, and then the carriagemen tie her up and whip her and then and ravish her. And then you get the line, what are you thinking about, over that. And then we suddenly are in this whole other world what are you thinking about, Severine? You seem so far away. I was thinking of you, of us. We were driving through the woods in a coach. That coach again. We are possibly in the real world. I mean, I don't want to say that anything is anything in this film because it is so slippery, but we can consider this the real world and Pierre asking her what she's thinking about, taking us out of that fantasy and she says like, oh, I was just thinking about, you know, this carriage and stuff and it's like, how much has he, has she told him about this fantasy? I don't think that she's told him everything. And there's so much too with this film where it's how much is somebody telling somebody else? I mean, again, jumping to the very end, what does Michelle Piccoli tell Pierre? I don't know. We aren't privy to that. And I love that, that we're not privy to that. It's wonderful. And I I do think with someone like Bunuel more than a lot of other directors, that point you made about you can assume which scenes are fantasy and which are reality, but with Bunuel, you never really know. And I'll never forget the first time I saw this, I 
knew the loose plot description, but if you read basic plot descriptions, it makes it sound different and more straightforwardly narrative and more straightforwardly erotic than it is. Like it is a super erotic movie, but it it definitely makes it sound like this, you know, confident woman who goes out during the day to get her jollies while her husband's at work, which is not at all really what it is. But the first time I saw this, when she is having that fantasy about the carriage And he says, what are you thinking about? She says, I'm thinking about us on a carriage. And he says, oh, the carriage again. I was like, holy shit, he knows about the carriage fantasy. And then, (laughs) then like, within the course of a couple minutes, it's like, oh, he doesn't know about the carriage fantasy at all. He goes to uh, get in bed with her and she's just like, yeah, no, no. Nope. And it's like, had she told him about the full carriage fantasy, I think uh, more fun would have ensued. Which is why I think he's so great as the husband, because I often find Jean Sorel sort of annoying, if only because I really don't like those kind of like milk toast everyman characters. Like, I basically can't even look at Tom Hanks in a movie. And Jean Sorel is like the milk toast, handsome husband guy, which I think is why he's so great in Jalo movies, where he plays this sort of like unassuming, dumb, hot guy who winds up having some sort of scheme or, you know. But here, I think because he is this very two dimensional character who has chosen It's like he's chosen to be with this woman who presents herself as cold and sort of infantilized, and he enables that. The fact that he's a doctor even makes it weirder. My previous understanding of Pierre is that I felt sorry for him that, you know, he loves this woman, but he has to deal with the way she is. And it's like, no, he clearly understood and signed up anyway and enables her behavior. There's a weird cut when they first kiss, when she's in bed and she's in this, I mean, it looks like, to your point, a little girl's nightgown. And of course, it's white. And I was really paying attention when I was rewatching this last night as to when she's in white and when she's in black. And when she's in red. Yes. And she's in white so much of the time when she's around Pierre. And then, of course, the the times that she goes to the brothel, she's almost always in black. But then there are other times where it's like when she seems to be starting to get happy, she seems to wear black more often is how I was seeing it. Yeah, me too. Which was very interesting that, you know, it seems like it would be the opposite of what you would think. And yeah, that red is not just a red. It's like a blood red. And she only wears it when she's with Marcel. And she only even puts red on after their relationship begins, which, of of course, we're skipping way ahead. But every time I watch this, like, I am not particularly, or I guess I don't consider myself to be particularly feminine. Like, I find fashion interesting from a historical perspective, and especially because of my interests in surrealism and how a lot of those artists went on to influence 
developing fashion in the 20th century, but, and like, I never wear dresses, but the Yves Saint Laurent clothes that she wears, like give the, I want them all. Like those coats are amazing. Yeah. The hats that she wears. But even the male characters have the choice of costumes and set details is just like immaculate in this film. I just had to pull up the movie and rewatch it because I was afraid that I'd like blinked for too long or something. It's interesting that the first time that we see them kiss, there's actually a jump cut right before they kiss, which was just very odd. I mean, we get jump cuts in this film, of course, uh, especially during the mudslinging scene. Which is weird. But I'm just like, what the hell's going on that with this jump cut? And it just really, it's a little bit jarring. And I'm, I think it was very much done on purpose that we have this jarring moment right before they're intimate. And, and as they're in this intimate moment, they're starting to lean together to kiss. And it's, a big jump. And it seems to be in every version of the film that I've seen. Bunuel was somebody who, or at least the way I think of him was a genius and didn't make those kinds of mistakes. I mean, especially by this point in his career, which if you haven't seen a lot of Bunuel films, he definitely has distinct periods. And I would say this is part of his last period, which starts kind of in like early 60s with something like Viridiana and goes till the end of his career. For him to include something like that, even in the mudslinging fantasy, it seems so intentional. Well, and of course, during the mudslinging fantasy, talking about dialogue not matching, that she's begging for Pierre to stop even though it's Husson that's throwing the mud, but she's begging for Pierre to stop and her mouth isn't moving. Yeah, those old surrealist tendencies stayed with him. I mean, even though I think a lot of his Mexican films don't feel as surreal as the movies he made at the beginning or end of his career, it's it's always there in some form. We should probably talk to, speaking of you know time and these things, about how out of place a carriage is in 1967 France and that those scenes with the bellman or sorry, with the carriage men and there's a duel that happens later on. I mean, the novel was published in, what did I say? 28. And it feels very much like it's 1898 kind of thing. Like it feels like very much the remnants of the 19th century are lingering here and then that he's making this in 67, you know, in, in 28 vehicles, you know, cars would have been relatively new at the time. So carriages probably still were around quite a bit, but that he keeps the carriage. I found that to be great. And it, it has this very interesting way of taking us out of the narrative that way. And then also signaling, you know, how she longs for other things, maybe bygone things. And that also plays into her and her childhood, because we have two very distinct flashbacks of her childhood, which I found to be interesting as well. The carriage, it not only has that weird temporal effect, drawing you out of the, the like, quote unquote, real scenes but I think it also really connects to these issues of class that are going on in the film. And Bunuel almost always has something about class in his movies. And which I think like a lot of leftists, especially a lot of the surrealists coming up in the twenties and thirties, 
it's just, it's there throughout all of their work. But here, there is this really like strange connection with aristocracy in her fantasies as being this sort of power dynamic that is social and economic that I think bleeds into this world in the 60s where she's going to work in this upscale brothel, but she's the only one there by choice. And there, I think, is a lot of tension that he doesn't fully explore, but definitely implies like her getting more clients than the other girls, even though she's the only one who doesn't need clients. There's so much to unpack in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, talk at one point about, you know, throwing money at her and she's she doesn't say I don't need the money, but she doesn't need the money and money's not going to motivate her. It's it's a very interesting dynamic because, yeah, I, I, there's at least one of the other girls, uh, the Matilda character, I believe, who she says that her boyfriend was hurt in a cycling accident, I think it was, and that he can't work and she's the breadwinner. Yeah, and she talks about how he's her fiancé and she loves him, but she's there because she loves him. Whereas with Severine, it's a, <laughs> it's a totally different situation. Although I guess you could make a case that she's there because she loves her husband, but she doesn't want him to see this side of her. Also, something that I never thought about until a couple minutes ago when you brought up her wearing the childlike nightgown and and saying, like, no, do not come into my bed tonight. It's hard to think of other 60s movies that shows a married couple sleeping in separate twin beds. It's like something out of the 30s, like once the, the Hayes Code took effect. So like we can show her having lots of weird sex in a brothel, but n not that he couldn't show it, but realizing that he chose to portray it that way, it's even wilder <laughs> if you think about We haven't really talked about, you mentioned Masha Merrill earlier, I'm very curious what you think about her as Renee and Michel Piccoli as Henri Usson, their relationship, because we get introduced to her first and then we get introduced to him. And I think he's holding her hand and he says, I would like to tell you something rather amusing. I love you. Thank you. Your scars heal so well. Oh, you're a bull. That is something that took me a couple watches to even pick up on. I'm always very happy to see Masha Merrill, who I first came to know through Argeno's Deep Red and things like Night Train Murders. And my mind was sort of blown to see her also in all these like European art house movies when I was a little bit older. My interpretation now is that... They have what I would think of, and I'm sure what Bunuel would think of, as a parallel relationship to what Severine is doing, where she's intentionally dating. It's it's sort of like an acceptable form of sex work, if, if you want to try to describe it that way, or if I want to try to describe it that way. Because it sort of seems like she's dating this wealthy man who she doesn't really like all that much and is obviously, and this is what I take from the scars 
comment and from a conversation she has later with Severine in the cab. What's new with his song? It's the same. You still seeing him? I'm afraid I am. It seems like it's this transactional relationship where she's agreeing to be in this sadomasochistic relationship in exchange for some sort of socially acceptable, like an apartment or jewelry or clothes or something like that. But the scene where he tells her he loves her, it's one of the best things ever. And he's like, I have something nice to tell you. And he tells her and she's like, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the close up on her wrist. And he says, your scars are healing nicely. It's like, what are you doing to this woman? (laughs) Yeah, it feels like he's the sadist and Severine is the masochist, but she doesn't want to admit that she's a masochist. She's so ashamed of what she desires. At least that's how I feel that it is. And it's one of these, like for whatever reason, it reminded me of a movie I don't like at all, which was summer of Sam and the whole thing of John Leguizamo wanting to fuck his wife in the ass, but he's a good Catholic. So he can't want to fuck her in the ass. And so he just puts himself through all this turmoil because that's what he wants. And it feels like she really wants to explore this masochistic side of herself, but can't bring it to the one person that she really should, which is her husband. So she keeps it secret. She keeps it hidden. She explores a little bit with Marcel and with the brothel. She fantasizes about it, but cannot bring it out in the open to the person that she thinks is supposed to respect her and the way that she's supposed to be this perfect wife. But she can't live that lie either. It's like she's living two lies. Yeah. And that's what I think is so fascinating about her relationship with Henri is in a different, better world, maybe she would just be in a relationship with him. And I think it implies that he recognizes what she is. And there's something, and I definitely noticed it more this time around, where when she goes into the brothel and she starts working there almost right away, her co-workers and Madame Anais which is a nice nod to Anais Nin. <laughs> I was wondering if that was a nod, because I knew for sure that Severine was a nod to Severin from um, Venus and Furs, but I was like, oh, definitely. is that a Anais Nin uh, reference? Because I wasn't sure be. when she was like actively writing and, and doing her stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely by that point. I'm sure, I, I think she and Bunuel would have known each other by the mid-60s. Even if it's in the original novel, which I don't know if that's what the character's name is. I'm just going to assume it's an Anais Nin reference. But (laughs) the thing that I think is so wonderful about her time at the brothel is the way that people recognize what she needs without her having to communicate it. There's just like this innate understanding of some fundamental part of her personality which I think makes her relationship with her husband even more sad in comparison because it's like he doesn't know her at all. He's like this sort of weird stand-in father-slash-doctor-caretaker and has envisioned her on this pedestal, which doesn't allow him to see anything about her. 
But all these other people without even knowing her are like, oh, we know what the deal here is. <laughs> Though it's so funny when she gets picked by the professor, one of the clients at the brothel, who is also a masochist. And she just can't do it. No, she looks down on him like, what a sick compulsion you have, sir. And come on, uh, look at yourself here, Severine. You would probably really enjoy this scene if the tables were turned. Even the first guy that she has sex with who at the brothel, who was such a delightful character, the wealthy, but like lower class background candy uh, business owner. Right. Mr. Adolphe, I think it is. Yes. Mr. Adolphe, who is larger than life. And he, when she sort of resists having sex with him, he slaps her and then she's like, okay, now we're good. And he's like, oh, I understand now. (laughs) (laughs) And something that I don't think I picked up on when I watched it when I was younger is it feels very no judgment. And some of that coming from the other sex workers is financially motivated, but even all the different clients who come in, it seems to be in a weird way. And I'm sure some people are going to get mad at me for saying this, but it seems to be sort of a weird, safe place, like in the context of this movie. Oh, yeah, 100%. No, we're very pro sex work around here. So yeah, I can completely see that as a safe space for her. And she has some really sad lines where she talks about how she has to go there and she needs it. And even her husband remarks on how changed she is. And so in a lot of ways, it's clear that it's good for her being able to actually have a sex life and have her fantasies fulfilled. Are you coming to the party this evening? Oh, I'm not sure. Miss someone likes to get to bed early. Let him go to bed and you come with us. It's as good a way as any to spend an evening. I prefer to see the mesmerizer. They say he does miracles. Well, I'm one he won't put to sleep. A mesmerizer is not a hypnotist, dear. He makes you see sunrise and light. A hypnotist tries to make you see darkness. You mentioned earlier the whole thing about hypnosis, and they talk a little bit about hypnosis versus mesmerism, which I found interesting. But you also talked about when Adolf uh, hits her, she falls down on the bed, or he pushes her down on the bed, I should say, and she just starts to stare into space, which she's like in a state in that place. And then also when she's in the taxi cab with Renee earlier, when she's talking about brothels for the first time, when it's brought up, she goes into a trance there as well. They start to talk about brothels and she goes into the state and i also found it interesting that they're in a taxi cab which is another could be it's the modern carriage carriage, exactly and i think she takes taxis a lot um i know that she drives pierre later in the film uh after he sees that wheelchair but i think she's taking taxis to the brothel i could be wrong but definitely they're taking a taxi in that scene It seems very different from something like Repulsion, where she slips into these trance states in a very real triggered way where she just like, it's like she shuts down the way that you would in the response to a trauma. But the hypnotic state scenes here, and there are definitely a number of them throughout the film, it's different. It's like something slips her into her fantasy world. And that's why 
Earlier, you were talking about that criticism of her acting when she's trying to be clumsy and she drops the vase. So when she first hears about, I don't know if it's a friend or an acquaintance or at least somebody within their social circle, another woman who is upper class, but has started working at a brothel, that sort of sets her down this fantasy path and she drops the flowers from Henri because she just is, her mind's just taking her there. It's also very inappropriate that he's sending her all of these flowers. I mean, he's hardcore wooing her, even though she's a married woman. He seems like the type of character. And the great thing about this film is so many of the characters are only loosely sketched. Like, Bunuel, I don't think, was ever too concerned with exposition, which is one of the things that makes him such a great director. So there's a lot that he suggests that your mind sort of fills in the blanks. And so maybe somebody wouldn't agree with my impression of him, but there are enough lines that talk about how he's this modern day libertine. He's this wealthy guy who is pursuing all different sorts of pleasures. He's kind of bored by life. And you get the sense that he is friends with people because it's entertaining, not because he feels a particular emotional bond. So I don't think he would have a problem. I mean, he says to her, I'd like to see you without your husband. Not that your husband isn't great, but like, (laughs) let's get to the real stuff here. (laughs) After a while, there's definitely a connection, an attraction of her to him. I mean, that fantasy she has about them going under the table and the table moving, I found that to be pretty fascinating. And I like how that plays directly against the scene of the Duke and the coffin. And especially because, you know, you've got the table is shaking very much the way that the coffin was shaking. She's holding lilies in the coffin. And then you've got the, the dream with Henri, Renee is describing it to Pierre, uh, what's going on under the table. And she says, oh, they're opening an envelope. Oh, it's lily seeds. I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. And lilies, of course, being the flower of death. I mean, death runs through this whole movie rampantly. Also the flower of regeneration and rebirth. What I'm wondering, too, when it comes to death to me, that kind of plays into La Petite more. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like we are talking about, yeah, death and regeneration and rebirth throughout this whole thing. And of course, you know, Bunuel loves to um, talk about and especially slam religion, which I was absolutely fine with. Love to see it every time it happens, which is in pretty much every single one of his films. I was very confused about what was happening under the table in that fantasy because. The table's shaking, so they could be having sex, or it could be some sort of hand job, oral sex situation, but he smashes the end of a champagne bottle. So at first I was like, are they doing something with the bottle? But like also the edge of the bottle is broken. But there's also a scene that confused me, and I, I love that he has all of this in there where you're like, what exactly happened there? <laughs> The scene with the Japanese man with the box. So basically, the middle part of the film, like the second act, 
is when she's convinced herself to go to the brothel and she can't resist and she starts working there. And there are a number of sequences where she meets with different clients who have sort of different fantasies, perversions that that she takes part in. And the best one is this Japanese man who shows up with this lacquer box that he opens and shows one of the other girls who's like, no, thank you. And is horrified. It makes this buzzing sound and it makes Severine clearly excited. She puts her arms around him and like, you never see her be affectionate with anyone. But at the end of the scene, there's blood on the sheets. Not a lot, but it's like, what was in the box? <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> Oh, what's in the box? Not you, give me the what's gun. in the fucking box? I love that in that she is so happy. And when the maid, Palace, I think it is, comes in to clean up and she's just like, oh, you poor thing. And severing, and this is one of those wonderful like poster shots that you get a lot, when she lifts up and her hair is all tussled and she's just like, how would you know, Palace? And she is just so happy at that moment. And that's it's fully blissed out. Yeah. It's like a, 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 a real turning point in the movie because then after that, it's like, you know, I think that is around the time when Pierre's like, Oh, wow, I can really see a difference in you. And she starts wearing, you know, the black around him and that awesome, you know, we we're talking about, uh, I don't think we mentioned Pierre Clementi's, uh, incredible leather coat that he wears. It's but, so good. But her like patent leather or, it even looks a little bit like yeah. uh, PVC almost. It's, that coat. it's a patent leather overcoat that is, it's incredible. And it. It's such a fetish item. Yeah. It's, I think, more of a recognizable fetish item today than it would have been in 1965, which it's like the movie is so ahead of its time. The more times you watch it, the way people's fashion plays off of each other is just incredible. Like, after she meets Pierre Clementi's character, Marcel, Marcel has this great black leather trench coat. Uh, Joe D'Alessandro has a very similar one in Lamarge. I, I love them. Maybe the Hakeem brothers brought that over. Yes. It's, <laughs> although Joe D'Alessandro, I think, is shorter but more muscular than very skinny Pierre Clementi, so I don't know if they could fit in the same jacket. <laughs> but... After she meets him, she also starts wearing this very, very dark brown leather trench coat that has these like fur cuffs. It's like the most beautiful coat I've ever seen, but she only wears it in a couple, like maybe two scenes. This, I, I feel like this is a movie where Henri's character and his appreciation for beauty and pleasure is the dominating view like in the background of the film. Like the visual world is just, I feel like we're talking about, you know, the carriage and the flowers and the clothes even more than we are talking about the sex scenes, which are all super erotic. And speaking of fetish items, I mean, 
Luckily, Bunuel wasn't as in-your-face about his foot and shoe fetish as Quentin Tarantino is. Oh, God. All of those shoe shots, and then I love the sex scene between Clementi and, and Deneuve, where it's her shoes and then the boots. And, like, the boots are so prevalent. His boots are so prevalent in that one sequence where you've got the boots on the floor and then you're kind of tracking over and you see his belt and then you move up into the bed. It's like, that's really nice. And there is some great sexy stuff in here, but it's not, you know, this is 67. We're not seeing hardcore, really even softcore. We're not really seeing simulated sex in here. We're just getting the beginnings and endings, but that makes it even We're hotter. Seeing some shaking tables. That's for sure. And some shaking coffins. Wow, what a weird fetishistic scene that is. That might be my favorite non-Pierre Clement. I have so many favorite scenes in the movie that I I but my favorite thing about that scene is so for the most part when she meets clients, she meets them in the brothel, which makes this scene so different because the carriage of her fantasies shows up to this outdoor cafe and you're waiting for some fantasy sequence to start. But this Duke gets out and sits down and has this conversation with her and says in very vague terms that he will pay her a lot of money to accompany him to his estate for a religious ceremony. And she goes there. The butler basically gives her this amazing see-through robe to change into that leaves very little to the imagination with that again like she was wearing like the little flowers on that nightgown and here she's wearing this almost what would it be like a headband or something it goes around the head very angelic with all the little flowers like a on veil it. yeah yeah it's it's like a flowered veil that you would wear if the outfit were in white, you would wear it to like a first communion or well, that calls a wedding to another or something. Scene. Yes, which I, you know, had to had to nod to. But once the scene ends, it's clear that she's been invited to the house of this rich necrophiliac fantasist. There's nothing to suggest that he actually has sex with dead women, but he just wants to fantasize about it. His dead daughter. Yes, specifically his dead daughter, which is great connection to Tristana, which is a couple of years after this and has Deneuve once again. But it's like nobody specifically tells her you need to lie there with your eyes closed, pretend to be dead, don't move. She's given such vague instructions that when she's laying in this open coffin and he like says all these romantic things to her and these sort of tragic things... And then he he disappears, and the table just starts shaking, and she, like, gets up to look down and see what's going on, and it's clear that he's down there masturbating, but he's so angry that she's not pretending to be dead and has ruined the fantasy. <laughs> well, and he's so mad at that butler when the butler says, Please, sir, do you wish the cat's inside? Go to blazes with the cat's! Which is very interesting that that line is exactly, well, not exactly the same. Yeah, don't let the cats in. Don't let the cats in. (laughs) So similar to when she was getting whipped at the beginning of the film. And it's like, oh, don't let the cats in. I'm just like, 
what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me to believe, I'm like, is this a fantasy? Is this not a fan? And again, I like that I don't know. You know, it's it's really nice because I I kept wondering because then the the, after the session is done and the butler's just like, okay, yeah, get out. She's like, what? And he's like, you know, like, hey, it's raining out. She's like, I I don't care. Get out of the house. You have to go. (laughs) Kicks her out of the house, and I'm like. How'd she get back to the city? Cause she's way the fuck out. This is like, you know, that you would expect somebody would come to the door and say Fidelio to get let into this place. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. And there's no like follow up. It's not, there's no scene showing her struggling to get home. There's no scene of her like in bed with a cold because she was stuck in the rain. It's. <laughs> When she comes home, I think, because again, time is a, a very loose concept in this film, but right after that, we see her get into bed with Pierre, and it's like, okay, wow, things have changed. And Pierre, oh my God, does he have a way of stepping his foot in it? I mean, oh every time she starts to show him any sort of affection, he's always just like, oh, why can't we have this all the time? Or... Oh, one of these days you, I want to have a baby. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sakes, dude, just be happy with what you've got. You've got uh, finally your wife is happy with things, you know? She's joining you in bed. Just let it go, dude. Or marry someone who doesn't have secret proclivities. It's funny to me how much my view of the film has changed over the years. Going from feeling bad for him to being like, he, Pierre Clemente's character is right. He's the obstacle to her truly being happy. Uh, Not that I think she should be with Marcel, but we should talk about Marcel more because he's, he's incredible. Well, that whole weird turn of like suddenly the the genre switches yeah and like we are suddenly in a gangster film in the middle of this a gangster film and there's also references to breathless in here as well and i think that they kind of coincide with the gangster stuff because there's the person who's selling what is it the herald tribune and you see the arc de triomphe in the background and i'm like okay that's like gene seberg and in breathless here new york herald tribune And that, I think, kind of kicks off this whole thing, yeah, with this elevator robbery, which I'm just like, wow, where did this come from? It's also so strange because the way that all of the scenes are set up, Severine is in all of them. And if other characters are introduced, like when Henri is introduced and Rene, it's in the same scene as Severine. And this is the first time in the movie, like probably an hour, if not more than an hour in where we're just suddenly not with her. And it's like, what, where are we? What's happening? Yeah. And you really take a vacation from her for a little while because there's that scene. And there's also the scene in the cafe with the four gangsters and this. uh, So it's Marcel, the Clementi character. And then there's Hippolyte with the other character who i can't remember the actor's name but he was spanish and at one point he starts to sing this like flamenco song and i'm like yeah i think they'd say that he's from argentina or something and he like he's definitely speaking uh 
accented French and talks about his travels all around the world. But I love the way the sex workers sort of roll their eyes. Like, here's this, this guy who doesn't know the actual rules that you're supposed to play by. Uh, the character is Francisco Rabal. What a trip this guy is. And yeah, the, the sex workers are just like, oh, this guy. And then when they go oh, into him, them, it's like, <laughs> oh, hey, you're back. Great. Let me sit on your lap and we'll chill champagne and we'll have this great time. And it's like, wow. Okay. And then, yeah, he, he gives up Severine to Marcel, the Clementi character and Marcel. Oh my God. <laughs> I love Clementi. So do I. I I really, I don't know if this will ever happen or be possible, but I would really, like, I've toyed with the idea of writing a book about his career. It's hard to find a lot of primary material in English, so I would have to, you know, flex my French muscles a little bit to and make Italian, that happen. And Italian, too. Yes, and Italian. But he just... He's worked with like every single major important art house director and he it like you can't take your eyes off of him. The first time I saw this, I was so confused because he's one of those actors and Marcel is one of those characters who's like extremely erotic and charismatic even though he shouldn't be. He's this dirty gangster who you just saw mug somebody in an elevator and he's got this silver grill instead of having front teeth, but he's so hot. He's amazing. He's so greasy in here. And that cane that he has, like somebody had said, I, I can't remember where I heard this, like, Oh yeah, the cane, it, like a knife will pop out. And I'm like, I don't remember seeing that in the movie, but okay. It's not something you see, but it's so on brand for his character, where he does have this sense of anachronism, the way that a lot of Severine's fantasies do. He's he's like this like highway bandit type of figure. I want you to hand over all the lupins you've got. Like he doesn't really look like a lot of the people in French 60s and 70s crime movies. He doesn't have any of the sort of Melvillian, you know, character tropes or even costume tropes. He just is so singular and he's so critical of her in a way that is clearly meant to establish his dominance over her. It's sort of like a What's that that book called or that like method where guys try to put women down? Oh, negging. He's negging yes. her. Yes. He basically negs her and says, "What's that brown spot?" A birthmark. A boss. That breaks it. Get dressed. Forget the whole thing. <laughs> I can't stand a birthmark. <laughs> it's like this is Catherine Deneuve, buddy. <laughs> And meanwhile, he has that big, long scar on his back. And I mean, him and Knives, I mean, God, when he's in the cafe and those other two gangsters come in and they start trading insults, he is so quick with that knife. It's just like he must have had that in his hand already when he just leaps up with it. He's so volatile. but He's basically a walking phallic symbol. But she seems the most satisfied after their encounters. And she wants, I think she's the only client that we 
know that she sees repeatedly. And the wonderful thing I think about the way their relationship develops is Pierre can tell that something is up and forces her to go on this like ice cold winter beach vacation for a few days that she doesn't want to be on, which I think in his mind is like, okay, you're in love with someone else, which in a way is true. But when she gets back and Marcel is finally able to see her, which he, you know, is now fiending and is desperate to see her. He goes to beat her with his ginormous, amazing belt buckle that must also be Yves Saint Laurent. It's so beautiful. And for the first time, she says no. And if you do that, you'll never see me again. And it's like clear who is the one with the power in the relationship. She's topping from the bottom. Yeah, she basically is. <laughs> but it's like she's finally found a relationship where her desires can be met, but she can also get some affection and respect in a certain sense. Right. It's also, I think sometimes people confuse submissive for passive, and it's like she's not passive. She wants to be submissive. She wants to be masochistic. She doesn't want to be pushed around. And I'm really glad when she stands up for herself. If the scene was written differently and he started beating her out of anger and she got aroused, I think it would feel like, okay, here's yet another director who's portraying a sadomasochistic relationship or who's confusing an abusive relationship with a sadomasochistic one. And that gets shut down real fast. So it's like, it's so ahead of its time. One thing I wanted to talk about too is we were talking about the fantasies and, you know, you mentioned the, um, uh, the communion dress and we get two moments of her as a child. And one of them, I read the book and the book is super easy to read. I think it's like 88 pages and luckily it's not overwritten. You know, I mentioned, uh, Venus and furs before. Oh my God. That one. A little bit overwritten. (laughs) Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. I was like, Oh cool. This hot book. Oh, what the fuck, man? (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot going on there. (laughs) There's a lot going on. It just, I, I'm sorry. Like, it's great that you like furs, but my God, I don't need to read 20 pages. It's like what, what Melville did for whales, Sachar Masak did for fur. You know, it's like, Oh, Oh boy, how did you catch this ermine? And tell me more about this. But <laughs> yeah, it's very different than more contemporary erotica like Henry Miller or Anais Nin. And it's also like the complete opposite of Sod, which is really philosophical. It's just like this guy who wants to write about angry women and fur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and occasionally there's some whipping. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's that like cuckold part when he becomes Gregor and she takes a lover. I mean, it's, you know. It's a wild book. And for anyone who wants to read it but hasn't, the Guy Deleuze uh, commentary that you can get to go along with it is wonderful. There's your homework assignment. (laughs) (laughs) So in the book, it opens with her and the plumber. And it's the plumber that's at her house. And they don't describe it in a lot of detail, but you know that he's molested her. And then when it comes to the communion scene, I mean, she 
has never confessed this whole thing with the plumber. And I think she thinks that she is tainted by that. And so she doesn't feel that she can take communion, take that first communion or any communion. So again, playing in the religious angle here, which is, is great. But I also love the religious stuff when it comes to that fantasy of, uh, Husson and Pierre and they're, getting the mud thing going and oh, there's also it's incredible that scene it, it's so short but there's so much going on so there's one talking about stuff being frozen and i don't speak french but i did read in wood's book where uh the verb and all this like basically they say she is frozen and it could be talking She's about frigid yes yeah. could be talking about that it could be talking about denouve there's all those cows there and they're all named remorse except one is except called expiation. <laughs> it's such a Bunuel moment. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm not Catholic or religious at all. So when they stand up or, or in our historian, they stand up and they bow their heads and it is a, a replay of a, a painting called the Angelus. And I didn't know what the Angelus was. So the Angelus for listeners who at home who may not be there are like me and you don't know your daily prayer rituals. So at the end of the day, it was basically like, okay, your work is done. Say a prayer for God or Jesus or whatever. And that was the Angelus prayer. And I'm like, wow, that plays right into her whole work schedule and that. You know, I can never be here past five o'clock. And so it's basically like once, once those bells ring five, it's that prayer or her going home. And I love that he ties all that stuff together. It's, I mean, there's so many layers of things going on here. Like you, you know, earlier we were talking about how you could do a whole class based reading, but you could also do a whole reading on. Bunuel's rejection of Catholicism and how it ties into these sort of Catholic sadomasochistic visuals and how that comes up later again in Tristana. It's there's so much happening. That's part of why I love this so much. Also, I was raised Catholic and knew at a very early age that I hated it. So I I think that's also part of why I really connected with this so deeply the first time I saw it. Plus, I think also this idea that the person that you're in a relationship with and that you should love or do love has no idea of what's going on in your inner life, I think is something that shows up in a lot of films and novels and is troubling for people. But he brings it to life in the such a rich way. It's like, it's not that she doesn't want to have someone meeting those needs. It's that because of the way that their social world is and their relationship dynamics, she can't. And she would much rather be sullied by these lower class characters than someone of her same class. Again, going to that and how threatening Husson is that he is of her same class. And it's like, no, no, stay away. But I do like that. You know, we did talk about the table fantasy and then we also had the fantasy of the duel, the duel at dawn. So again, going back to, you know, the turn of the century, the, the, the 18th or sorry, 19th into 20th centuries, 
and them having this duel and her being the victim of the duel, which I found really fascinating that they're shooting at each, at each other. And the way that it's shot, it looks like Pierre's the one that shoots her. And you just get that little bit of blood at the temple and her very ritualistically tied up to that tree. I mean, she almost looks like, uh, what is it? St. Sebastian or something. I was looking for arrows in her. You know, it just looks very, very ritualistic the way that I can't remember the Japanese rope, uh, bondage stuff, but it just felt shibari or whatever. It felt like that to me, that it was very painstakingly put together. It just looks so much like all the Catholic imagery around saints, especially female saints being sacrificed. I mean, the scene where she's tied up in the cow pasture wearing that white robe slash dress, like toga type thing, it's the same thing. And I I love that in the second half of the film, her fantasies almost always include both Henri and Pierre working together. It's it's like they represent these two sides of her fractured identity, basically. Yeah, here's the man that I have, here's the man that I would like, or here's what I would like him to be, or yeah, he knows me better than my own husband does. That scene where he comes in, Husong comes into the brothel, and you're just like, oh boy, there's going to be a real scene here. And it's funny because she's the one that throws the fit, and he doesn't. He is cool as a cucumber, and when Anais shows him, you know, oh yeah, here's the the girls, you know, you know, they, oh, and here's our new uh, one, Belle du Jour, and yeah, he just, okay, doesn't even pay attention. He just carries on, and then, you know, picks her, and then she throws a fit, and he's just like, hmm, yeah. I'm done. This doesn't interest me. Yeah, he's so not into it. He's just like, okay, well, yeah, I won't tell Pierre. So I don't know if you read this the same way, but on watching the film again, I felt like she was partly having the fit because she wanted him to subdue her. And then when he didn't and was like, nope, you have to want it. You have to ask for it and leaves the room. She just is like (laughs) out of it, but or out of it with anger. But I also love the little detail. Like we keep talking about the little details in this scene, like palace, the, the woman we mentioned before, who's sort of like the cleaning woman who sort of keeps house when Henri comes in, she tells him that she missed him and she's been having dreams about him. It's like, oh my God, she's in love with him. <laughs> and again, fucking dreams, you know? Dreams. I mean, I have. don't we all have dreams about Michelle Piccoli? Guilty as charged. Truly. And then he asks, what happened to the lion tamer? What a draw if your brothel has a lion tamer as one of the girls. I bet the professor misses the lion tamer as well. <laughs> she probably really knew how to use that cat of nine tails. I'm sure. <laughs> I was picking up to a lot, and this is grasping at straws, newspapers. There's a whole thing of newspapers in this, and it's interesting because everything is so insular in this film. The brothel, the house... You know, the, she goes outside a few times. You've got the carriage rides. You've got the whole fantasy with the Duke. 
but it's not like, and again, I was talking about the, the weird timeline of this. So it's not like you're getting a lot of like news broadcasts or talk about like what's happening in the world of France in 66, 67. But then you've got these newspapers that are in here. We've got the crossword puzzle at one point. Doesn't she read or there's something oh. about a mining accident? Yeah, and bunch of men dying because of a big hole, I guess. There also something that I really noticed this time around that made me feel like it was a connection to the newspapers, though I'm not totally sure if it is. They keep having these recurring conversations where she asks different people, "Oh, I didn't think brothels still existed." And there are multiple people who say it's not like it was during the war. So it's like clearly established that this is at least a decade after World War II, but there's this weird sense of, and maybe this is just my breeding, but it seemed like there's this weird sense of nostalgia. Like these people were saying there are still brothels, although sadly they're not the way they were during World War II when there was a whole red light district and you knew where to go. And it almost seems like, Bunuel is maybe suggesting that in the post-war years, especially in the 50s and into the 60s, things became less free, which they certainly did in the United States because of the Cold War and things like McCarthyism. But it's just an interesting thing that intrudes on her fantasy world, the newspapers and World War II references. and The Japanese man we were talking about earlier – that he's so familiar with sex workers that he, he goes to pay and he pulls out this, it looked like a credit Geisha card. Club credit yeah, card. the Geisha Club <laughs> credit card. And he's so unconcerned about money that he just pulls out this whole wad of cash. And Anais, I was very happy she just takes what she wants or, or needs and gives the rest back to him. But he's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, and he never speaks. French, we don't get him subtitled at all. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You know, and I'd like that talking about, um, you know, brothels and sex work, work and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah, we acknowledge there is definitely sex work in other countries as well. It's even acknowledged that Pierre has been to sex workers, although I feel like he also inadvertently puts his foot in it by talking about it like it's a negative experience. Like he says, yes, you go and you're with the girl for half an hour and then you feel depressed afterwards. Like this is something to be ashamed of. It just like widens that gulf between them. Pierre seems like the least fun person in the world. Oh, one thing about that dual sequence that I forgot, we were talking about sound earlier. And when Pierre goes up to touch the blood that's on her forehead. We get these crashing waves on the soundtrack, which we'll get again a little bit later on towards the end. And for me, that's like she's back at that beach location and that moment when, and that's a very interesting moment too, when he takes her on that forced vacation, you actually get her voiceover. I mean, it's the the closest I think that we are to Severine because we don't really, you know, she's very, I think Deneuve is perfect in this role. She's cold. She's distant. 
we don't really get to know her very well. We have to project a lot of our feelings onto her. You're talking about how Bunuel will give you points of reference and you have to fill in those lines in between. And she's very much like that as a character is that we are filling in the details, but we do get a voiceover in that one moment in that vacation scene and her like, how can I explain it to you, my darling? There are so many things I can't explain to myself. Things about myself. What I feel for you has nothing to do with physical pleasure. It's so much more than that. And even though you can't believe me, I've never felt so close to you as I do now. And then when we get those crashing waves again later during that fantasy scene where those two guys going at it, you know, Husson and Pierre and... I don't know if there is a winner in that duel because she's definitely the loser, but it feels like she's tying that back to that memory of the beach. And I kept waiting for a big sperm whale to be on that beach. I guess I'm just obsessed with uh, Seeds of Man. It's also that scene on the beach is so weird because it's this really sudden jump where I think it goes right from the brothel to the beach where they're, they don't have any conversation beforehand, there are no establishing shots, and it's like you just see her sitting on the beach, and then I want to say Pierre walks into frame, or the camera zooms out a little bit, but it makes it feel like it's just very it, one of the many very disorienting things going on with the editing here it's like are we in another fantasy and it it always every time i watch this i forget about that scene and it takes me a minute to realize like oh makes that part of the film shift so much more because it's clear that her personality is beginning to come out more and <laughs> she's so different in the second half well and she's wearing black in that beach scene as well like she still is kind of aloof especially with pierre but so much more confident like she says i i'm cold i want to go back because you do get the sense that she wants to go back because she misses her brothel work and the sense of freedom that it brings her but also the newfound relationship with Marcel. Like, sorry, boring, uh, boring Pierre. <laughs> you need to get yourself a leather trench coat and a grill and some swagger. So we should talk about the end of the film and the end, the end starts early. And the end for me is when she and Pierre are at the hospital and we see him all in white coming out and you get those sirens going it's like okay you know yes we're at a hospital but these sirens on the soundtrack are no mistake we are getting <laughs> warned no. he sees a wheelchair on the sidewalk he is strangely drawn to it even though it, 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 and even says i'm fascinated by this <laughs> yeah it's, it's chekhov's wheelchair <laughs> you're gonna be sitting in it soon buddy <laughs> oh yeah and by this point, I think Marcel has visited her at home, violating. She has quit uh, the brothel. Anais has tried to make a connection with her, like, oh, give me your address so we can stay in touch. Nope. 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 Not going to do it. 
But also the power dynamics there have shifted. Like in the beginning when Severine first goes to Anais's and sort of says she wants to work there but is really nervous, Anais gives her this kiss on the lips that really embarrasses her. And then at the end when she leaves, she's the one who kiss who tries to kiss Anais and Anais is embarrassed. And turns her head. Great. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's so much of embarrassment as just a snub. Uh, Maybe it doesn't feel like embarrassment, but I think the way it feels to me is there's a degree of attraction there. And by leaving, she's breaking Anais's heart a little bit. I can definitely see that. It's very subtle. It's not like Anais is this, you know, oh, hey, yeah, I have sex with all my girls kind of thing. It's like, no. No, so subtle. Super subtle. I don't even know that I feel like there's a super strong queer reading to be done. It's just more that Severine really becomes this fantasy ideal for all the other characters, even the other women in certain ways, whether they're actually sexually attracted to her or not. Severine has kind of made it a little bit you know she's got this life that they would probably all want and fantasize about even though she doesn't like it the the life that she's leading and they probably wouldn't be satisfied if they got into that life and had pierre as their husband (laughs) but well and i think Benwell throughout so many of his films kind of beats you not necessarily beats you over the head with in a bad way but makes it very clear that money and class just make people miserable and mm-hmm. confined and they can't be their true authentic selves and all the bad things. Oh, and they're so blind to things. If they hear something, they'll just think it. They don't think things through critically. That whole thing, what is it, the Phantom of Liberty, where it's like, oh, this little girl's missing. Even though she's standing right in front of them, they're still looking for her because they heard that she's missing and they can't think critically about that. I, I love that he does these things. Yeah, he's wonderful. You get Marcel gunning down Pierre in the street, and you don't see it. You just hear the gunshot. So, again, the audio is just crucial here. You don't really see Severine in that scene either, which I, I like that she's on the couch and that she pops up from this couch after she hears the gunshots. And it's this little like reveal of her, which I wasn't expecting. We're in crime movie territory again all of a sudden. We, yeah, we move into <laughs> crime movie. There's a shootout. Clementi just like does the whole like, oh, they got me kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very theatrical turn once he uh, gets shot. Uh, again, kind of reminded me of uh, John Paul Belmondo from Breathless when he gets taken out by the cops. So I, I really think that Boonwell was, was doing that on purpose. But it becomes this melodrama for a few minutes. We've got the doctors consulting her. Hey, yeah, uh, Pierre will live. He's in a coma for now. We get this double exposure of the trees and the apartment. And it's like this collision of worlds happening. This whole idea of the trees that we've seen, both in the Duke part of it, the opening. I mean, all of these 
f- fantasies of the um the mudslinging the uh ravishing by the coachman the duel that's all taking place in this very arboreal world we're out in the country for that like i said with the duke as well that's out in the country and now we've got this clash of the apartment with the arboreal world with the the trees over it and suddenly we are taken into the end of the film which seems to be all of these things coming together all at once and it again like i said it's very melodramatic that we have Husson coming in and just like i'm going to tell pierre you know you can't do it but i'm going to do it he has to know this and we have her before that trying to give pierre this mixture of like lemons and whatever she talks about like drops but yet giving him this whole like thing to drink and working on her needlepoint, and I'm I'm jumbling everything together, but I think that's actually okay for this because everything gets jumbled together. It's like he takes all of these puzzle pieces in a box and just shakes them and shows them to you all at once. It's such a great scene because you really have no way of knowing how anybody's feeling or what anybody thinks especially with her there is this weird sense of finality like okay I'm gonna do my due diligence as a wife and take care of him and sacrifice my life to helping him heal and it definitely goes back into that Catholic guilt like she's transgressed and now she's gonna spend the rest of her life paying for it but Definitely later directors like Fassbender or slightly later directors like Fassbender would do things like this where the use of melodrama is so over the top that it's almost campy. Like the way that Pierre is in that wheelchair with the blanket on his lap and the giant sunglasses, like it's kind of comedic. (laughs) And the single tear that's rolled halfway down his cheek when... European art house directors include those melodrama elements. It, it, I love it so much. <laughs> when Husson is telling Pierre what the transgressions were the, about Severine and that he found her at this brothel, that's what I'm assuming he tells her. He tells Pierre. Yeah, maybe he tells him nothing. Because definitely if you're blind and paralyzed, I'm sure your eyes water a lot. He doesn't necessarily have to be crying. And I honestly thought when she said it's time for your drops that she was going to be putting eye drops in because there's got to be a reason why he's wearing those big old sunglasses. I'm like, we don't know how we got shot. We don't know what the hell was going on down in the street because we just get that shot of the outside from her point of view up in the apartment looking down on things. The bells ring. She goes in to see Pierre. And yeah, we've got that single tear on the cheek (laughs) so good she goes she picks up her needlework we get that great push in on her and then a pull out on him she starts to smile we hear bells ringing and then we get the return of the line what are you thinking about severine and she is so happy because suddenly pierre is fine he just stands up 
takes off those sunglasses. We hear a, a cat crying again with the cats here. <laughs> I, I haven't seen a cat in this entire movie. We just I don't hear think about there cats. is one. People just talk about them. Talk about cats, and then we hear a cat crying. There's, uh, I think, waves are on the soundtrack. There's bells on the soundtrack. It's pouring her drinks. They're about to cheers. You know, hey, I've got two weeks off coming in February. They hug it out. <laughs> and then you hear the carriage bells. And I don't know if he reacts to the carriage bells, but she definitely reacts to the carriage bells. And it's almost like she's like, oh, can you hear that? She thinks that he can hear the bells as well. And she goes out to look at the carriage. And I love that when she walks out onto the balcony, she's not there at their apartment anymore. She's, again, got trees. And then where the carriage is coming from is not that Paris street that we saw her look out, you know, earlier on that street, she's back out in the forest and this amazing shot of the carriage just coming down this road, going past us. And then we get Finn. And then we stay on that shot long after Finn has passed. And we, I'm just like, how long is this shot? Just like on the ground, <laughs> on the ground, just this empty road and all these leaves and everything. I'm like, okay. Yeah, it's very confusing, but it also, my reading of it is just sort of that she just once again retreats back into her fantasy world. So, like, you could read it as a weird happy ending, or sort of. (laughs) It's very confusing to explain. Frankly, the way that he asks her, what are you thinking about, Severine? It makes me think that almost this entire movie has been a dream. Maybe there wasn't a brothel. Maybe there wasn't even a Houston. <laughs> Maybe none of this was real. Maybe that, what are you thinking about, Severine, was the same what are you thinking about that we had at the beginning of the movie. Are you having the Pierre Clemente dream again? <laughs> Who doesn't? Very right? true. You either dream of him or Piccoli or both of them fighting for you. It feels very much like... You can have your really sad, melodramatic ending, or you can tack on this other ending and it can turn into a happy ending, but it's probably not. And I I love that he gives it to us both ways. Yeah, and I also love when directors like Bunuel present melodrama as fantasy, as what it is, rather than saying that this is anywhere near like real life. And I feel like that's a degree of what he's doing here. It reminded me a little of the end of uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call in New Orleans, where suddenly everything goes right for Nick Cage. Like he's had the worst time of it in that movie. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, yeah. And you got that promotion and uh, your lottery numbers came in and, you know, we solved the case and just all of these things inexplicably happen. And you're just like, okay, he's probably whacked out of his mind, and this is all just a fantasy. I love when that happens in movies, though. Me too. <laughs> when it like doesn't give you an easy answer. So let's go ahead, and we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. 
I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. All right, we are back and we're still talking about Belle du Jour, though, interestingly enough, I didn't realize that there was a sequel to this film. Were you able to watch the sequel? Because the only copy I found was in French with Spanish subtitles. So I did watch it not too long before we recorded. And I think you're fine to have missed it. And I don't want... (laughs) I, I I don't know why I'm having a lot of guilt saying that. Because so basically what it is, is... It was made in 2006 by Manuel de Oliveira, and it's like an homage to Bunuel. Bunuel would have fucking hated it. It is shot so statically. So basically, the whole premise is that Henri is the main character of the film, and it's, it is uh, Michel Piccoli, which is, I think, my guilt is... I. He gives a fine performance. He clearly is having a good time. But what happens is he sees Severine, who's played by uh, Bull Ogier, who I is another one of my favorite actors ever. She's She's great. incredible. Yeah. He sees her across a busy Paris street and goes on this mini quest to find her. Like he basically stalks her. This is what he does. And he goes into this bar that he sees her come out of and strikes up this conversation with the bartender to find out what's her address because she was leaving a message for someone. And he goes back in most of the narrative is he keeps going back into this bar while he's searching for her. And he tells the bartender the story of what happened in Belle du Jour. 
But it's like a weirdly not accurate version of the story. And when he finally meets up with her, she wants nothing to do with him. There's not a lot of dialogue between the two of them, but the implication is that he's convinced her to meet him for dinner because she wants to know what he told Pierre all those years ago. But the movie never answers the question. And most of their dinner is this like silent, tense dinner scene where they're just eating by candlelight. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of if you've ever seen any of the 90s or early 2000s Jacques Rivette movies, it looks a lot like those. So it's clearly like made with less of a budget. But those movies I love. I, I've seen most of them. And they're amazing because even when Rivette has a small budget, he gets great performances out of people, often Bull Ogier, and has these really amazing plots and scripts. But this, it's like a little over an hour, and it's just like, yes, I would be so happy to see more of these movies with Michelle Piccoli as Henri Yusson's character, but like, what was the point of this? It felt almost like a fan film. That's how it looks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks so cheap. I love those two actors, and I have been meaning to see more films by that director. So I don't want to judge him based on this, like, 2006. It looks like it was shot on television stock or digital or something. It's very weird. But no one needs to watch it. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. <laughs> Cassell's book was adapted a few more times. So there's a Belle du Jour from 2000 that I, from looking at the actors, and this is not a slam because I'm uh, definitely a fan of adult films, but it looks like it's a porn version of it. There's one from Turkey called either The Heart Queen or Queen of Spades, depending on where you look. Um, I was unable to find that. That's from 86. And then there are a couple of legit adult films, uh, versions of it. Violation of Claudia in 77 and then V the Hot One in 78. So one of them, I think V the Hot One is a Gary Graver film. Uh, the Violation of Claudia, um, they really go, uh, we didn't mention because it's such a little thing in Boonwell's film. We didn't mention tennis. Um, oh yeah. But they really go <laughs> for the whole tennis thing with, uh, this, uh, Violation of Claudia. So, book isn't very racy, but of course you can take this and make it super racy. We talked about how erotic Bunuel's film is. It's not softcore or hardcore, but you can take it and adapt it to a hardcore story so easily. And that's what they did with these two films. And I should probably also say that there's a and this looked super sleazy from what I was seeing with photos. There's also a 2014 miniseries from Japan called Hirugao Love Affairs in the Afternoon. Some afternoon delight. Two to five every day. Those are pretty amazing work hours, I have to say. I would love that. And I'm not sure how much she's pulling down. Not that it really matters to her because she is wealthy, but... I mean, yeah, work three hours a day. Whew, that would be wonderful. Lucky. Yeah, very, very lucky. But yeah, I would recommend both because uh, I, 
I it's been a long time since I've seen Violation of Claudia. Same. I want to say it's a Sharon Mitchell. Yes, it I is Sharon say Mitchell. From what I remember, now you're making me doubt my memory. <laughs> but yeah, I seem to remember liking that. The, the hot one I haven't seen, but I like uh, Gary Graver's stuff. Um, Violation of Claudia's William Lustig. Um, and Jamie Gillis is, I can't remember if he's the boring lawyer type character. I think, I he's think they changed the him to. character, but that oh, could that be. That would make a lot more sense. It could sense. be my brain doing some wishful thinking. I mean, he would be a perfect Hussan. <laughs> so, oh, actually, I'm sorry. She decides to seduce Kip, her tennis instructor, and Kip is the, the Jamie Gillis character. Oh, yeah. okay. Kip decides he can make something of her, so he starts setting her up as a woman of the evening, even though it would be the uh, afternoon, really. Uh, so I think I sometimes confuse Violation of Claudia with the Damiano movie Story of Joanna, where it does have some of those like repressed woman. It's it's amazing, but it's a much more conventional Jamie Gillis type role. Yeah, I mean he. Well, we saw him play basically Henry Higgins in opening of Misty Beethoven. So, I mean, we've got him kind of controlling a woman that way. So controlling a woman in this way, it's not too much of a stretch. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's the thing, though, that, you know, he was trying to control her. And really, it's like Pierre doesn't try to control her. Obviously, he's completely you know, oblivious. Husson does not try to control her. He would like to bed her, but she's really her own woman. And I really appreciate that, that, you know, you're talking about that evolution that she goes through in this, in Belle du Jour. And she really starts as her own woman and ends as her own woman. And just, it's this journey for her and it's all about what she needs. And that's kind of why I like that second ending where it's like, Okay, great. Now we're happy. It's we can take a couple weeks in February and go someplace. Maybe go back to that horrible beach that you were hanging out on. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic beach. <laughs> that like winter frozen doomscape where you were just thinking about Pierre Clemente the whole time. <laughs> also, if you're trying to watch Belle du Jour, don't confuse it with that weird mini series that I think has the same name from the 2000s. It's it's like a British TV series about this. I, I want to say she's a college student who becomes a call girl and takes on that name. It's not based on the same thing, but it's sort of a sim loosely similar premise that her, her secret job is she's a call girl. And I think she writes about it, but She's doing it definitely because of money, not because of some, like, repressed desires. Yeah, that's Secret Diary of a Call Girl. I haven't seen all of it, but it stars Billy Piper, who I find to be kind of alluring. Yeah, she's delightful. Or can yes. be. The few episodes of that that I saw I really liked, but yeah, it was kind of almost more... It's almost like a more risque sex in the yes, city. Yes, Definitely. It's Sex in the City if the show was all about Samantha, as I think we all wish it was. <laughs> That's why I'm not watching that sequel whatsoever. Me neither. Mm -mm. Nope. Take the three boring ones and just have them. Yeah. No, thank you. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the the woman that wrote Secret Diary of a Call Girl went by the name of Belle du Jour. 
Okay, that's that's what I'm confusing the connection of there. And by the way, I apologize to my French uh, listeners out there. I keep saying "de" instead of "de." So, but up for whatever reason, I have the worst time. Maybe is it like a Spanish versus French thing that I always do a "du" instead of a "de"? I don't know what my problem is. I mean, you're close enough. Yeah, but when I write it, I always fuck it up. So Okay, it, well, if you write it with the U, then that's no good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot for me to write these show notes the right way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Something's coming over me. Had been. A girl way out here with no play friends starts imagining things. That's right. We are getting dirty in March with a month of discussions about adult films. So leave the kitties at home as we discuss memories within Miss Aggie to kick things off. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam Deegan. So, Sam, what is going on with you? I should probably plug my podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve. Uh, we have episodes come out every two weeks. The focus is psychotronic, so it's really sort of like Projection Booth. It's all over the place. Speaking of Belle du Jour, so the very first essay I wrote that got to get published in a book was an essay that I wrote about Story of O, the early 70s film adaptation and Belle du Jour and sort of female masochism and the performativity of pleasure. It's in this book called Screening the Dark Side of Love that because it's an academic book, it's like $80. But I think what I'm going to do because I'm sure no one will notice is I'm going to put my chapter up on my Patreon just because it's, oh, nice. it's important to me and I want it to live on somewhere that, you know, you don't have to pay $80. <laughs> Academic publishing is a scam. While, while it is a great ego boost to have something academically published, it's like no one can fucking read it and you don't get paid. Have you been doing any commentaries lately? Yes. Um, some things that just got announced recently that I'm really excited about. I did two commentaries for the upcoming Miklos Yank show box set that Kino Lorber is putting out. Um, I talk about this movie called Electra, My Love, which is sort of like a Greek allegory about totalitarianism and or a Greek mythic allegory of totalitarianism and Winter Wind 
which is another one of his many movies about political violence. So very, very excited to be involved in that. And it's been one of those sort of whirlwind months where I feel like I just am constantly recording. But, you know, can't complain. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of know that feel sometimes. I'm sure you do. I don't know how you do it. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. My motto's always been when it's right, it's right Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night When everything's a little clearer in the light of day And we know the night is always gonna be here anyway in flight